Welcome to another episode of Civic Cipher. I am your host, Ramses Ja. A lot of people, including my co-host, call me Q Ward, and mostly that's because my name is Quentin. So Q is the short, and then Ward is my last name. So that's just kind of <laughs> how that whole thing came to be. Very thorough indeed. Um, stick around. Uh, today's episode, we got a lot of cool stuff to talk about. Uh, some things you might not know and uh, that you might want to know, including... Uh, the story about watermelons and their relationship to black folks in this country. Uh, we're going to ask the question, are watermelons racist? Which I know on its face sounds crazy, but trust me, it's worth exploring. Um, a little later in the show, we're going to uh, talk about black church, uh, which is not a, a subject that we get into too heavily on this show. Uh, but today it felt kind of important to um to reach out and or reach over into that uh, subject matter so today's show will be a look back uh, a way black history fact show uh nearly in its entirety if you will so um a lot to stick around for but definitely a lot of knowledge maybe some insight in some areas you may not have known about and that's what we aim to do here, of course, each and every episode of Civic Cipher. Uh, but first and foremost, uh, let's get into some Ebony Excellence. So today's Ebony Excellence, we are talking about a stamp that will honor the late civil rights leader, John Lewis. Uh, so today's uh, Ebony Excellence comes from Black Enterprise, and it reads... He lived his life fighting for equality and human rights, and now his legacy and good trouble model will live on. The U.S. Postal Service announced that it will circulate a stamp honoring the life and legacy of late civil rights leader John Lewis. According to Axios, the stamp will feature a photograph of Lewis that was captured by photographer Marco Grobe for an issue of Time that was published on August 26, 2013. Uh, and here's a quote, devoted to equality and justice for all Americans, Lewis spent more than 30 years in Congress steadfastly defending and building on key civil rights gains that he helped archive in the 1960s, unquote. And that comes from the USPS. Um, and uh, here's a bit more. Even in the face of hatred and violence, as well as some 45 arrests, Lewis remained resolute in his commitment to what he liked to call good trouble. And this one comes from Nikema Williams, who is the Democratic representative from Georgia. Linda Early Chesting, a former chief of staff for Lewis, who now heads the John Lewis and Lillian Miles Lewis Foundation, embraced this announcement. Uh, here's a quote from her. Lewis's face is the face to voting rights. Having it on a postage stamp honors Lewis and the movement which he led and in the process encourages voter participation, civic engagement, and getting into good trouble. Uh, that statement comes from NBC News. Um, and as you know, Lewis uh, died at the age of 80 in 2020 after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. Uh, the late American politician and civil rights activist was known as the conscious of Congress for his unyielding battles for racial equality, voting rights, and human rights. And of course, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that was passed in 2021 by the U.S. House of Representatives is named after him as well. We like to 
take a moment around here to point out things that we feel are excellent, we feel are um, decidedly black that need to be celebrated, that might be overlooked. And, you know, at least in this arena, this moment, John Lewis um, being honored with a stamp is something that we will stop and, and, and highlight and, of course, share with you. Now, onward. Today, we are going to talk about watermelons. That's, that's, mm. such, a, that's such a funny thing. Now, okay, let me paint a picture for you. So let's say you're not a black person, right? You might be thinking, what's wrong with the watermelon? They grow out of the ground. It's food. Human beings eat food that grow out of the ground all over the world. That's kind of what we do. It's delicious. Um, yeah. How about that? You know? But as it turns out, um, you know, there are some things that exist in our world by our, I mean, you know, black folks um, that are really the legacy of a very um, hurtful relationship that black folks have had with this country going all the way back to the beginning. And they still persist to this day. And so recently I came across, um, you know, I live in an older house and, you know, the people that owned this house before I bought it had some uh, racist caricature black folks advertisements um, in the backyard. And I never discovered them. I lived here. This has been 12 years I've lived here. Never discovered them until recently because they're posted onto the back of a beam in my backyard. Anyway. I saw this stuff and I was like, wow, you know, and then I saw, you know, there was a person, a black skin cartoon, big lips, of course. And he has like a watermelon that's huge. And he's like smiling ear to ear. And I was like, you know what? At some point I need to make sure that I discuss this with our listeners on the show. So a bit about um, certain types of foods. Uh, I'll, I'll tell a personal story. I might have shared a bit of this before, but um, for those that don't know, once upon a time, I was working at a radio station um, in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was the production director of this radio station, and I worked in a studio that was separate from the broadcast studios, right? So there was three studios, two, two for broadcast, <clears throat> excuse me, one for production, uh, where I made the radio commercials. I did the imaging. I basically made everything that wasn't a song or wasn't a jock talking live. And that was my job. Everyone knew that that was my studio. I know it belonged to the station, but there were all my posters up in there, all my magazine covers, you know, because I was a jock too. Um, but that's where I spent most of my, my day. So I was in there all the time. Um, I had, you know, my creature comforts in there. And then Whoever needed to come in the studio and use it with me, I was the one recording their voice. Outside of that, it was my, my studio. One day, I, there was a recent changing of the guard at the radio station. Um, and then, you know, one day right after that, I walked into my studio and I saw a banana on the uh, mixer. Uh, the mixer is the, the big sort of device with all the buttons and faders in a, in a recording studio. So um, I had one of those as well because I had to, you know, mix the mics and so forth. There's a banana sitting right on there when I walked into the room. 
And immediately my heart sank. And immediately I felt like, oh my God, I, I don't know if I should be afraid, angry, uh, you know, what, what action I should take. How do I, you know, because this felt very personal. It felt like an attack on my character um, and who I am and a, an attack on my ancestors. You know, it's just, it's just, you know, and for those that don't know, walking into a studio and seeing a banana there, you would naturally think maybe somebody left their banana there. It never even entered into my mind. It never, when I saw that banana, I knew for a fact that somebody, it might've been the owner, it might, somebody left that for me to see because it was right there, right in front of my seat, right where I couldn't miss it. And, you know, when I say that my heart sank in that, that, you know, that gripping fear, that paralytic fear that you feel when you are walking down the street and you see like a vicious dog in front of you with no chain and no one around, like, oh my God, okay, I need to figure out what I need to do. It was that moment for me. And immediately I turned around and walk into the room. I turned right back around. I let the door close and I went into the uh, program director's office. Somebody who I felt like was, was a friend of mine. I still feel like that guy is a friend of mine. Um, I, I didn't assume that it was him. Uh, so, so to help paint that picture. He, he, he was always a good man to me. You know, it felt like a good man. He felt like an, like an ally, like the sort of person that would listen to this show. So I went into his office and I said, hey, man, I don't know what is going on here, but somebody just did something that was really out of pocket. And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, come here, let me show you. And then he got up and he went and he saw it. And he had no idea. He's like, what am I looking for? I'm like, do you see the banana there on the, uh, the console? And then when I pointed it out to him, because he had seen it, but when I pointed it out to him, he was like, uh-oh. And he's like, I, I don't know what this is. I, I, I have no idea. Um, here, let me get this out of your way. Let me figure it out. Please don't worry about it, right? So this is why I say I feel like he was a, a kind man. That, that, was the, that was the reaction I would have expected from him. Not that I was expecting anything, but he just seemed like that sort of person. Anyway, he took the banana and he kind of said some some kind words to kind of provide a a sense of like I'm going to protect you you know um I, for those that don't know a program director is the the boss of my position at, at that time which would have been a, a production director and a jock so he goes to his office and he does a little bit of research and maybe an hour later he puts to, puts it all together he's like hey um as it turns out uh, the morning show guy needed to go into the studio to cut a promo. So he used your studio to do it because he had to make way for the afternoon or sorry, the midday uh, woman to do her show. So he used your studio and he, that was part of his breakfast and he just forgot it. And, you know, he was riding his motorcycle that day. He just forgot it. He just grabbed his helmet and this, that, and the third, and he just left it there. Um, I don't, I don't think that it was anything directed toward you. Um, so all was right with the world. But I think that that story illuminates just how um, jarring our, meaning black folks, relationship to food can be when it's observed through the lens of other races. And other races have the same type of, uh, these same types of issues, you know, foods are closely associated with culture. And if there's some way to pick on a culture, 
you know, usually it's it's the most obvious ones, you know, physical features with the way people dress, what they eat and so forth. Right. But, you know, this is so that we can explain our experience to folks who might not otherwise know. Now, that was a banana. And obviously, or maybe it's not so obvious, the, the, the connection there is that uh, historically, based on bogus science um, that was used to further subjugate uh, and, and, and to justify, subjugate Black folks and justify uh, slavery, uh, bananas were used to, uh, or Black folks rather were associated with, more closely with, you know, apes and monkeys and things like this uh, to kind of create a bit of a divide between real humans, quote unquote, and lesser beings uh, so as to justify our servitude, you know, at that point in time. And so this is why you'll, if you watch, you know, soccer games, you know, World Cup, things like this, you know, if, if there's a black team or black player that's doing really well you know um they'll throw bananas on the field because what they're trying to do is make a connection between black people and and monkeys and i'm not going to pretend like you know us having brown skin and you know many of you know many apes having you know a brown color to their fur or whatever you know it's it's just a, a silly connection and a juvenile connection that people make especially folks that wake up early in the morning get dressed pack a banana <laughs> in their kit and then go to the game with the specific intention of throwing it as soon as a black person, you know, scores a goal or whatever. So these things are based in history. So, you know, hence my reaction walking into my studio seeing a banana. Now, we're, we could talk about malt liquor. We could talk about, you know, uh, fried chicken, you know, and, and maybe on later shows we will. But, you know, today the research was done on watermelon. So allow me to share. Um, one thing that I know to be true and you and I've talked about this before, Q. Uh, there's a, a song, the ice cream truck song. You remember we talked about this? So the ice cream truck song was called Inward Love a Watermelon. Um, so at, next time you hear the ice cream truck, you know, coming down the street, just know that the actual melody from that music was originally pinned um, and the title of that song was called Inward Love of Watermelon. Now, it, the name changed after that once the N-word fell out of fashion or whatever. But um, the reason that that song became associated with ice cream trucks is because once upon a time, you know, whenever there were treats given out, uh, ice cream went to white folks and watermelon went to black folks because it was cheaper and, you know, whatever. And so it became known as like kind of the black man's what or the black man's ice cream, you know, the, the, the Negro's ice cream. And uh, this is why you see these, these caricatures, these, these drawings, these cartoons, like the ones that I found in my backyard, of uh, these black folks holding a huge watermelon being so happy when they eat it, right? It's like, it was known as the equivalent uh, of what ice cream would be, because many, obviously many black folks back in this time never were able to taste ice cream because it was too much of a delicacy or otherwise it was too expensive. Watermelons were cheaper. But another thing about this um, is that, uh, and I pulled this from The Atlantic. There's an article written by William R. Black, uh, and I'll read this, and I want to hear your thoughts, Q. Uh, 
Uh, it goes, but the stereotype that African-Americans are excessively fond of watermelon emerged for a specific historical reason and served a specific political purpose. This is an addition to, um, you know, white folks eating ice cream, black folks eating watermelon. So I'll continue. The trope came in full force when slaves won their emancipation during the Civil War. Free black people grew, ate, and sold watermelons, and in doing so, made the fruit a symbol of their freedom. Southern whites, threatened by blacks' newfound freedom, responded by making the fruit a symbol of black people's perceived uncleanliness, laziness, childishness, and unwanted public presence. This racist trope then exploded in American popular culture, becoming so pervasive that its historical origin became obscure. Few Americans in 1900 would have guessed the stereotype was less than half a century old. And, and wh what they would do, and, and just so you know, watermelons haven't always just been associated with black people. It's been associated with other types of people, um, uh, Arab people, uh, you know, and, and typically it's associated with poor folks. And, you know, the way that uh, it's been politicized is, you know, you're going to have, you know, uh, watermelon rinds in your neighborhood all over the streets if you allow these folks to come in or if you don't clean up this mess or whatever the case is. Um, but in this country, you know, this represented economic freedom or, you know, economic advancement, we'll call it. And poor Southern whites obviously didn't like that. Um, still don't, you know, like that a lot. Uh, if, you know, their voting records are anything to go by. Uh, and really at that time, and, and I believe largely today as well, you can make a case for it, um, really needed, really needed someone to blame their economic problems on that wasn't the government. Because how in the world could you criticize the government, you know? Um, but let's blame these folks taking up all the jobs, you know, and doing whatever, selling their watermelons and making their little bit of money and creating some sort of economic independence from us rather than coming to work for us or coming to, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so we end up with now fast forward, the legacy of these ideas and the legacy of these um, stereotypes results in people nowadays eating watermelon, not in plain view of someone who might not appreciate the fact that it's just food. Now you listening, you might think, why in the world would I think anything other than it's just a food and that's a person eating their lunch or whatever, which makes perfect sense. And my hat's off to you because you've either managed to escape, uh, you know, being indoctrinated in this way, or, you know, you just, maybe you really just don't see it that way. And maybe a lot of people don't see it that way, but there are some people that do see it that way. You know, we saw lots of these cartoons with, you know, watermelon flavored toothpaste, you know, when Obama was in office and, you know, uh, these things still exist. You know, they're, they're deeply rooted in, in the American history and American legacy and American psyche. Um, but they also exist for us, for black folks. You know, I didn't, I wouldn't, if I, you know, a banana is a banana. If you like bananas, that stands to reason other human beings or creatures that share this planet will like bananas too. Same with fried chicken, same with uh, watermelon, same with anything, you know, we're all the same. 
you know, from a scientific standpoint, meaning that we all consume foods, eat them, you know, they nourish our bodies and they fortify us and allow us to live full lives. Um, but far be it for me to ever eat a banana in front of a white person who doesn't appreciate <laughs> the fact that it's truly just a banana and a human being eating it. I would be so, I would, I would be so ashamed to do that right now at, you know, I would, or else I would have to break a piece of it off and, and eat it like this. I couldn't peel it and hold it in a hand the way that you, a person might imagine a monkey would do it. So I want to get your reaction to this um, Q because I'm not sure how much of this you knew. I know you knew about the watermelon song, but you know, I want to get your thoughts. We got about four minutes. So once upon a time during my residency at a property, I won't name as I showed up to DJ and now at this place, the turntables, the DJ booth were set up on a stage. And on that stage, they had created sort of like a little lounge for me, couches and a table. And I would come in and my food would be there, my food and whatever I wanted to drink for me and my guests, whoever came with me. And the first time I showed up, because because I don't drink, I made food a part of my rider instead of alcohol. And the first time I showed up at this place where I was, you know, <laughs> in 2000 and maybe 12 or 13, the only black person in the establishment, uh, the food that was waiting for me was fried chicken and watermelon. Wow. Now, this was a really tough spot for me to be in because as everybody is, that's listening to this show knows, fried chicken and watermelon is incredible. It's delicious. It's half nutritious, <laughs> but mostly it's delicious. Yeah. Um, and similar to what you just said, I'm on stage so I don't want to sit on stage in this venue full of people that aren't black and eat chicken and watermelon on stage like I'm the show. Right. And I honestly don't think the chef meant for that to feel how it felt when I got there. Okay. But as you know, it absolutely felt exactly how, how you it think felt. it felt right. when I walked into this place and they're serving me fried chicken and watermelon. And my options were to laugh really hard or start flipping tables over. <laughs> so I chose to laugh really hard. And similar to the racist portrayal of watermelon, the foods in and of themselves are not racist. Right. But in Jim Crow America, in a, in, a, in a way to make newly freed black people look like savage animals, there was all these cartoons and caricatures and drawings and paintings that showed us very delightfully and ostentatiously eating chicken and watermelon with the juices flying everywhere and us in this delight of carelessness and as they would portray it somehow savagery right and it wasn't that just that watermelon was inexpensive but it was what you touched on earlier watermelon at that time gave us a way to grow something for ourselves to consume it to sell it uh, to have some sort of entrepreneurship uh, business acumen and independence. So let's make that bad too, right? Let's make that evil. Let's make that bad. Let's make that grotesque. Let's make that somehow beneath us and let's make fun of them, right? Let's exaggerate all their features 
and let's show the world how these savage animals look when they're eating their chicken and watermelon and really make a show of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I really am just echoing things that you've said already. It's just food. And in this case, really, really good food, yeah. right? Fried chicken might be the most sold food item on earth, especially in this country. And we're 13% of the population. So please don't think it's just black people eating it. Right. But that trope has lasted the test of time as have so many things from that period in our history that was made to look, that was created to make us look beneath and somehow less than and somehow less civilized and more savage and more simple, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So I know exactly what you mean. You know, there's, it's come up before and, you know, I think Dave Chappelle mentioned it. He's like, you know, all this time I thought I liked chicken because it was delicious comes to turn out. I'm genetically predisposed to liking chicken, you know, like just to make a joke out of it. So anyway, I'm glad we got a chance to touch on that. Uh, and just something to keep in mind, you know, um, just something to be sensitive about. And, you know, we'll get where we're going. So not, not too much to worry about, but our job is to teach. So that's what we do.